2024 might be a perfect storm, which could redefine the world as we know it. And maybe we're all not going to live through it. I'm Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics. This is a delightful opportunity. I'm so excited about this because I finally am getting to welcome onto the show an old friend of mine, and I can't exactly tell you what she does. I don't even really know why she's as important a figure as she is. This is just one of these people that you're really fortunate to meet in the world if you get the chance to. I'm telling you, this is the kind of person who's sort of behind everything that's happened. If you're like a world conspiracy theorist, Zania Wicket is the person who is holding all the puppet strings. I could kind of tell you the things that are on her bio as jobs that she's done. She's worked in the White House. She's worked in the State Department. She's worked for think tanks like Chatham House, which is a delightfully British name for a think tank. That's British for we're a think tank. She's worked at the Harvard Kennedy School. That's where I met Zania. Zania Wicket, I, okay, I'm gonna stop bioing you, but you just wrote, nowadays you're a speaker, you're a moderator, you're an executive coach, you're constantly showing up, moderating conferences at like Davos and like, I don't know, like where the Pentaveret meets to rule the world, because you know all these people. And you just sent out an email message that was really interesting to me called Navigating the Geopolitical Waters of 2024. Work on your titling, my friend, because what you're really saying underneath this is that 2024 seems like an inflection point in the history of the world. So many cross currents going on, and the next 50 years could really turn on how things shake out, and you wanted to give some guidance on what to think about, how to understand what those cross currents are. So first of all, Zania, welcome to the show. It is absolutely awesome to be here. Thanks, Matt. I want to say that when I met you, you had the most delightfully British name I had encountered up to that point, Zania Dormandy. And then you improved on it by getting married and getting the even Britisher name, Zania Wicket. I, you can't improve on your whole situation. It is fabulous. And you are doing really interesting stuff right now. I'm not going to belabor your bio any further. I want to get you. into, yes, I, but I, it is fascinating. Like your website, Wicked Advisory is worth looking at just to kind of try to connect the dots of all the places you've been. It's astonishing. Let's talk about though, you've gained an incredible perspective from all of that bio and you're applying it to try to boil down to about a page, page and a half, everything that's going on. Here's the jumping off point that stood out to me. You say at the top of this message that you sent out that you have looked at what prestigious organizations around the world have put together as their assessment of the key challenges in the world in 2024. And you note that there's almost no overlap. So it seems like leading thinkers around the world can't even decide on what our problems are. Is that, is that, is that sort of your conclusion? Basically, that's what, so why is 2024 different? 2024 is fundamentally different from any year which I've had the privilege of living through as a kind of geopolitical analyst leader, which is the last 30 years, because people can't agree. And what does that mean when we say people can't agree? What it, what, what it means is if you're the IRC, you have a list of International Rescue Committee, you have a list of 10 of the greatest crises of 2024. And you know what? Only one of them 
the Middle East overlaps with what the Eurasia Group says, these are the big 10 things to watch. Or the Council on Foreign Relations, the American think tank, says, here are the big issues. They don't overlap. What that means is we have this tsunami of things going on in the world today that aren't necessarily, and this is a really important point, doesn't necessarily mean the world is coming to an end. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to wake up on January 1st, 2025, and we're going to be smelling the roses and the daisies and the world is fantastic. But it means there's huge uncertainty and the world is going to be fundamentally different one way or the other. And that's what makes it so exciting. It's also what makes it incredibly tough if you're a business leader, a CEO, head of an organization, and you're trying to navigate your way through this complexity. Because, oh my, it is complex. That's actually what I wanted to tease as what's going to be my final question for you in about 30 minutes or so. Like, is this a good news or a bad news story? Like, I was kind of joking at the top of the show when I said, are we going to live through 2024? But there is a significant amount of, as Homer Simpson put it, crisis-tunity. There's crisis, there might be opportunity, and there is more, if I can use a $100 word, this is a stochastic time. There, there, It is fundamentally hard to predict what's going to happen here. There's just too much uncertainty. But what you then set out to do in your analysis that you shared with friends, and now we're going to spoil and share with all of our listeners and viewers, it, you try to at least create a framework for thinking exactly. about it. So your opening point is you want us to think about the world as a sort of a structure, right? And there are foundational elements, there are pillars to that structure. Walk us through what your pillars of the global structure are. Sure. So, so the way I see it, in a world in which you've got huge uncertainty, in a world in which actually where you stand, what you look like, your footprint, the industry you're in, is pivotal in figuring out how these things are going to affect you, the best thing you can have is a framework, is how do I think about the world? And so the way I think about this world in 2024 is your house. You have foundational pillars, as you described. They make up the architecture, the bedrock, the nature of the building that, that we're living in today. And then you have systems like electricity, plumbing, things like that. And the nature of how those flow have huge impact on the quality of your life within that building. And then you've got individual rooms and they're much more localized. Although if your bedroom burns down, that has implications for the rest of the house. So let's start with the foundation elements. And this is why I'll come back to this idea of could be good, could be bad. Five foundational elements. The first one, technology. Huge opportunities in technology, generative AI being the key one that everybody is watching, but renewables and biotech and things like that. This year could be pivotal, could make a huge difference to the direction of technology. Also meaningful costs with this technology, espionage, data and data usage, false flags, false information, disinformation. So positives and negatives about how technology is going to play out. And just so I understand oh, the technology sure. piece, what you're saying with each of these things, generative AI, renewables, biotech, what you're talking about are technologies that 
in the last two or three years, we've seen kind of, there, there's a classic S curve. Boy, I'm not going to, mm -hmm. things are inverted when you're on Zoom. And so like, I'm going to try and drop I'm with you. But I'm there's with a classic you. S curve of growth where there's sort of a slow ramp and then this inflection point and this massive up ramp and then a slowdown. And what you're suggesting is that in these key technology areas, we've been in the low part of the ramp. And in 2024, you think about like AI or you think about like CRISPR and biotech and these gene editing technologies, mm -hmm. we're now seeing the potential for a big takeoff. For some of them, it's you're in the slow part of the ramp, we're going into the big takeoff. Some of them, you may be in the big takeoff and that takeoff is going to continue. We don't quite know how they're playing out, but if you talk to people who are vastly more knowledgeable about generative AI, they will tell you, we are on the cusp. This is a moment. If you look at the biotech space, in some areas of the biotech space, we're on the cusp. In some areas of space technology, we're on the cusp. So there, there's enough there that you can imagine this time next year, we're in a very different place with both pros and cons. So disinformation, got we've got something like 50% of the global population will be voting this year around the world. So in a world in which you've got disinformation and you've got bots, are we on the cusp of a fundamental transition from an open, transparent, electoral, democratic system into something that doesn't look anything like that? Mm. Potentially, yes. So that's why technology could be pro, could be con, is in inevitably going to be both pros and cons, and it's how they play out, how those waves hit one another that matters. And that's and what... And Go your on. second one, I just, and just to jump into so, your second yeah. pillar for a second, not to get ahead of you, but what I find interesting about the second one is that on this show, we speak so much of U.S. domestic politics, where the issue of climate change and the energy transition is a political football. And one of the things that I skimmed over in your bio is that you have done business corporate work in the energy sector. So I think most of our listeners and viewers think that climate change is real. I think most of them are in favor of the energy transition. But one of the things that I picked up in your analysis here is, hey, it doesn't matter if you think that this is a driver. The world of business thinks that this is a driver. This is happening. The energy transition is real, and this is a fundamental pillar of change in the yes. global structure. Absolutely. So, I mean, everybody will have a different perspective. What the point that I'm making is this is happening, whether we like it or not. There is climate change. Businesses, organizations are having to respond. Countries are having to respond to this. Some countries are going to see benefits. The agriculture will take off because suddenly they'll actually be able to grow things in places they historically couldn't. Lots of other places are going to have real struggles with the climate change, with massive climate events that are going to impact impact them. So again, pros and cons. If you're sitting in the Middle East, you've had a stranglehold on energy because the Middle East covers or OPEC plus uh, accounts for something like 80% of global oil reserves. But actually, as we move into the energy transition, the reality is that critical minerals are much more broadly disseminated around the world. So again, pros and cons. Take demographics. That's the third foundational element. If you sit in Europe, if you sit in Japan, if you sit in South Korea, quickly aging populations, shrinking populations, China, shrinking population. If you sit in Africa, you've got the potential for a massive demographic dividend. So again, this isn't good news. Because their population is so young. 
your population is in, incredibly young. Something like 60, 70% of the population in some African countries are under the age of 25. Wow. So you have, you've still got incredible growth ahead. Now, that will also cause problems, by the way. But right at the moment, you've got what they call a demographic dividend. That is foundational element number three. Economics, foundational element number four, not looking quite so positive, mostly on the downside. You've got slow growth in China, vastly so slower than we had anticipated, than the Chinese had anticipated. You've got stagnation in Germany. You've got continued worries about inflation, et cetera, et cetera. So the economic story is not a great story, but you're also seeing potentially a soft landing in the US. And I'm standing here in the UK, as I say this, a positive. And then the fifth, and this is probably the one that I think most businesses ignore and is hugely controversial in the United States, is changing societal expectations and mores. There are no, I know this is a hugely friction-ridden issue in the United States, but internationally, if you sit in Brazil and you're trying to put food on the table, or you sit in Somalia and you're trying to manage conflict around you, very different views than if you sit in the UK, if you sit in Texas, you sit in California, et cetera, et cetera. So again, huge foundational element with both pros and cons. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I want to pause on your fifth for a second because it feels like the squishiest, but maybe the most subtly important. And it's the hardest to wrap around, our arms around. And maybe that's why I sort of deserves the most attention. There's vast uncertainty, as I could tell, in all of these pillars, right? Technology change. Good? Bad? Who knows? What's it going to be? Who knows? Climate change. Demographics. The demographics is fascinating, by the way. Just this overall shift in sort of economic vitality and potential from west to east or really to Africa, potentially on, on as their Long demographics term. crest, right? Along with kind of the stagnation and the aging of the population in the East. Anyway, it's, it, these are all fascinating. The one that I think is the trickiest is this changing societal expectations. And it really struck me in your analysis here that a piece of this is a loss of trust in institutions and systems. It's something that we're seeing in spades in the U.S. There are reams of polling data that support this idea. Trust in institutions is cratering across the board. And that seems to be opening the pathway to what we're seeing in the U.S. politically, which is the road to authoritarianism. It's sort of the authoritarian playbook 101. Everything is broken. Everything is in chaos. You can't trust any of it. And that leads to Donald Trump's classic, only I can fix it. You begin to get a sense of everything is broken. There's an emergency. And so you turn to the safe, the strong man. And I'm, it's disturbing that you're seeing this kind of thing happening around the world and in countries like the U.S. that have probably the most metastable systems and trust in systems that we've seen around the world and in history. The US is a country built on an idea, not on a certain demographic, not on a certain population, not even really on a stable set of borders. And it's mm -hmm. built on an idea. So trust 
in basic ideas is critical. And so just from a US perspective, I find this fifth one maybe the most insidious. I think the fifth one is the one that I would put the emphasis on. So if we want to talk about nothing else today and we can focus on that, I am game because can't, this can't is the do one it. That, There's a lot more in this one and a half no, pages. This is the one that people really struggle with. If you look yeah. at Edelman Trust Barometer, the only, and this is, I'm going to talk specifically to the corporate sector for a second. If you look at the Edel, Edelman Trust Barometer, the only institution that people still trust are corporates. And that's why corporates are getting stuck with societies saying, you know what, government ain't going to do it. So we're looking to you to take action. And that's why you've got the problems that Disney has had, for example. And so, and then if you're a global company, it's even harder because actually what your staff and what your teams and what your societies and what your customers and your suppliers want, if you're in Brazil, is different from what they want. If you're in California, which is different from what they want if you're sitting in London or you're sitting in Paris, because everybody has a local kind of nature, a local perspective, a local culture. And so the reason that I think it's so sticky and so amorphous, as you described it, is because you really have to get into the details of what do you as an institution do or an individual do? Where are you located? What do people care about most in the places in which you operate? And that's the only way you can start to drill into, well, okay, what do I as an organization need to do to be resilient, to manage this foundational element? But you can't do what some are doing, which is I'm going to close my eyes and pretend it's not a foundational element. That's like trying to build your strategy on sand. It that does is, not work. Yeah, that is so interesting. I We need to move on to kind of okay. the next part of your analysis. Yes. But I'm going to I'm going to exert host privilege and just say one more thing about this this last one. I started to see this shift domestically about about 10 12 years ago when there was a movement to create at the state level to create a new set of classification of corporations, B corps, benefit mm -hmm. corporations. And that initiative was driven by the idea that both workers and shareholders wanted to see a corporate mission, not just increase shareholder value, not just can you make the widgets? It's what is the meaning of my work here as an employee? And what does what is the meaning? What is the social meaning of my investment in this stock as, as a financial holding for me? And companies were intentionally reincorporating as benefit corporations so that they could have this broader set of responsibilities and aims. They weren't just beholden to maximizing shareholder value. It was interesting. I kind of tucked it away, especially the piece where people were finding meaning in their lives through their jobs in a new way. And again, this is a domestic US thing, not necessarily the global perspective. But as you talk about these foundational shifts in perceptions and sort of the pillars of the global structure, I just find it interesting to correlate the idea that people's trust in institutions and governments and government systems, i.e. democracy, liberalism in, in the small L sense of the word, as that wanes, they're shifting their trust, their sense of identity to corporations 
or to partisan authoritarian projects like MAGA Republicanism in the U.S. And that's weird. That's that that's weird. And I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Okay. Having established these foundational elements, these pillars, you then go on to your numbers are decreasing. It's kind of like a pyramid here. You go on to lay out four global systems that will dictate the currents, what how they ebb and flow in the coming year. What are those four systems that we need to be thinking about? So the four systems, and I'm just going to rattle through them and then I'll give you a little, I mean, the first one for all of your American audiences, yes, guess what? Everybody, whether you're in the United States or you're not, is focused on the US election. And I say this as I'm both a Brit and an American. I say this as both, which is everybody is watching You're a the stealth United American. State. People wouldn't be able to tell American. listening to you, but you are an American citizen. I am an American citizen. And so everybody is watching the US election and... And not just where it goes, but how it's going to play out. And we can dig into that. And I'd love to dig into that. The second key tension, if you will, flow, if you will, is what happens to US-China's relations. And again, really happy to dig into how I think that's going to play out over the next 11 months. The third is, of course, the Russia-Ukraine war. And the fourth is what's going on in the Middle East. And these are four... On the one hand, they are not global, they're regional issues, but they are regional issues that will have an impact for the world. So let's just for one second take Russia, Ukraine. You know, what's happening at the moment, of course, is on the ground, the Russians are making very small amounts of progress. And the Ukrainians are waiting for both the Europeans and the United States to agree upon another bonus, if you will, another funding stream to support their defense and their economy. If the Europeans and the Americans don't pull that out, then the Ukrainians, despite incredible amounts of energy and efforts and lives, are unlikely to be able to hold the line. If Russia wins, if Russia really starts making progress, then the implications of that aren't just relevant for Eurasia, but they're relevant for what China sees. They're relevant for what North Korea sees. They're relevant for what other entities around the world see and go, you know what? The West, America, Europe, not reliable. We can't rely on them on backing us. And that will change global relations around the world. So each of these regional, but with massive international implications. What really got me thinking in your analysis was, as I tried to relate your first layer of foundational pillars to your second layer of global systems. And just to pick one at random, I'm just doing this off the cuff. Let's pick on US-China relations. And you can see how that question really rests on the foundation of your of your five pillars. And you can draw the connection points to each of them. Technological change, the race for all kinds of technologies, quantum computing, where China's made a massive investment, biotech, AI, advanced crypto. And you can see that competition playing out there. Climate change, energy transition, massive competition, and the interrelationship in, in U.S. domestic policy with, well, how much are solar are we going to import from China? That's, that's a pivot exactly. point, and it plays out in our domestic politics. Demographics, we've already covered this, and the aging of the population in China and in the U.S., by the way. Economic uncertainty and instability speaks for itself. 
And then, of course, these changing social expectations and mores and the kind of authoritarian project of Xi Jinping, not to put too fine a point on it. And is there still a spirit of pushback and rebellion? What about the relationship to Taiwan? You can just you can draw those connection points. And the reason I went through that exercise was just to underline the incredible complexity and uncertainty of each of these four global systems that you Absolutely. But I, I, for your listeners, I don't want them to kind of go, I'm going to throw my hands up and say, that means I don't know anything. Because I think this is a really important point. What we're trying to do here and what you're just doing brilliantly is we are creating this kind of framework for thinking. So business leaders, heads of strategy can look at this framework and go, okay, let me take the first. And how does that play out in my organization? And then what are the guide rails, if you will? What's the worst case scenario, the best case scenario? And so how am I then going to put together this image, this set of scenarios that give me both the good and the bad that I can then manage and build resilience to? So you shouldn't see the complexity as a reason to throw your hands off and say, it's impossible to know what happens next. You should see it as a framework that then allows you to go, okay, this is how this issue is relevant for me. And by the way, this is how this doesn't matter to me at all. Like I can discard this. I can make the system simpler. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. You know, what you're really doing here as an exercise, and I imagine you do this a lot in your work as an executive coach, as you advise global organizations, you're showing off the value of the degree that both you and I got. I had a friend joke to me before I went to pursue a master's in public policy at the Kennedy School that getting a master's in public policy is you're a jack of all trades and a master of none, and it is, it's a useless degree. That was not my experience. I felt like I learned some really critical analytical skills for how to manage super complex problems and lay them out and distill them within a framework in a way that would enable you to make decisions. That's the whole nature of the ball game. You and I both trained in the same set of foundational skills. How do you write an analytical options memo? And it's what you just described. So anyway, I see exactly, I think you're making a critical point. I agree. It's a critical point that one shouldn't take all of this incredible dynamism and complexity as a, this is entirely random. There's <laughs> flee, right? Like this is all chaos. What you can do is sort of do what doctors do. You can provide a differential diagnosis. You can say, here are the possibilities. Here are the likelihoods. Here's the risk and downside if you get into scenarios that are bad. And here are the actions that you can take that are sort of no regrets. It, it, makes, it hangs together very well for me. So what you and I are both trying to do in our daily lives, I think, is how do we help organizations or individuals understand complexity and find a way forward? Like, how do we actually distill what really matters? You do that in your podcast. Actually, I've been listening to a few of them over the last few weeks in particular and just kind of going, wow, I didn't understand that issue. That was way too complex. It wasn't my area. Now I know what the three or four big things I should be watching out for. That's what I do. It's how do we take a really complex thing, simplify it in a way that actually means people can move forward. That is the nature of what the Kennedy School taught us. Except when you do it, 
you're whispering in the ear of Jeff Bezos. Buy, sell. You're like the Jodie Foster character in the movie Inside Man. It's like you are at every table with the mayor. It's like, here's what you're going to do next. When I do it in my snotty podcast, but it's okay. We're basically equivalent. Other than that, other than that and same. our accents, we're basically the same human being. All right. So you lay out sort of the next layer of the pyramid for global systems that are really going to define the trajectory of 2024 and beyond. U.S. election, mm -hmm. U.S.-China relations, Russia-Ukraine war, Middle East crisis. I want to go on here. You, your next layer in the pyramid, oh, I like the visual image with this. You call it the rooms. What do you mean by that? What I essentially mean by that is then on top of all of this, there's a whole a number, a whole host of localized issues that will be pivotal for the people in that area, but the le much less likely to impact the global system, the whole house, the whole building. But if a number of those localized rooms are affected independently of one another, together they affect your enjoyment of living in the house, essentially. And so once again, I kind of say, well, what are they? How do we think about them? The first is, I mentioned it earlier, we have around 50% of the global population voting this year. So you've got a host of localized rooms. If you're in India, you've got an, a, a national election, Huge, hugely important for those in India and the region. Bangladesh earlier this year, Taiwan earlier this year has already happened. Ukraine was supposed to have an election. Indonesia was supposed to have an election, of course, the United States. So you've got a, a series of democratic moments, if you will, that will be hugely influential for those countries, for those rooms and the areas around them. You've then got civil strife. And this is where the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, is really clear about what are the key areas that they're keeping an eye on. And that's kind of Somalia, Ethiopia, Sudan, South Sudan, Myanmar. Again, a long list of really troubled parts of the world. The third kind of localized room, if you will, is around localized environmental events, severe climate events. We've got the second half of El Nino. We saw the hottest, I think, hottest year and certainly hottest six months by a wide margin end of last year. We're going to see that again play out in the first six months of this year. And then the kind of the final one that I added there given the events of the last 10 days or so, is North Korea. You've got, we flew over the U.S. election, but the U.S. election doesn't just matter to the U.S., but you've got a whole load of allies and adversaries who are watching it and saying, oh, we might be able to take advantage of the next 10 months because America's distracted. And that's what we're seeing North Korea do, is kind of say, oh, maybe America's distracted. I don't like that. What can I do in the meantime? Just to bring this back to my wheelhouse of the domestic political lens, I'd like to suggest that what adds both complication but maybe some analytical power is the idea that all of these things are not independent events necessarily. There are correlations involved. The global sense that the wheels are coming off, that we are in a period of instability, strife, loss of trust. That connects to the 50% of the world that are going to be holding elections, the outcomes of those elections. And what you're seeing in many countries is the rise of these very hard right now, I'll go ahead and say authoritarian elements 
that are really pushing back on the idea itself of liberalism, the global order, and democracy. And to the extent that voters in the U.S. and elsewhere are feeling, wow, it's an emergency. The wheels are coming off. They are going to vote in that direction, in that more authoritarian direction. And that's why it's subtle. It's subtle. But I think competent governance is going to matter a great deal and has mattered in recent years. Now, in the U.S., it hasn't mattered as much as I'd like. Joe Biden has, by any objective measure, been one of the most productive and middle-of-the-road governing presidents that we've seen in a century. Has that helped him? It's hard to say. It hasn't. It certainly hasn't defanged his opposition. But I do think that the baseline level of competence certainly has removed some of the massive barriers in front of him in the next year. The fact that the economy is stabilizing, the soft landing appears to be happening, all of those are factors that we may not see it, but they're, they're certainly in the alternative world, things could be much, much worse. So anyway, when I see your list of the rooms here, what I see is a bunch of stuff that maybe governments and corporations and individuals have some control over and some things that we simply don't. And that's the tricky part, right? Like we can't control El Nino and it's very hard to get a handle on strife in Ethiopia and the situation in Myanmar. Those are hard to contain. I think what you're saying is we have to control what we can control. So it's a beautiful place to finish. So if I were to be putting on my exec coaching hat, the thing that I would say to you as a leader is figure out in this stuff, what's the stuff we control? What's the stuff we can influence? And what's the stuff we have no influence, no impact on whatsoever? And deal with the stuff you can control, first of all. That's the stuff you can say, if I do this, X will happen. Then focus on the stuff, where can we actually have influence? And the rest of the stuff, you just have to learn to live with. And so as a business leader, you really need to think in those three buckets. What do I control? What can I influence? And what do I just have to manage? I maybe want to get to the question I teased about 30 uh -huh. minutes ago. Um, okay. Is this a good news or a bad news story? Like, I mean, I was joking at the top of the show, but how concerned, given the threats and the risks uh -huh. versus the opportunities, how concerned are you? How concerned should we be about what's going to unfold in 2024? So I should preface my remarks with I'm a glass half full person. And I gen my starting point is if things are in motion, there are opportunities. And so actually, the glass half full optimist in me says this time next year, I think we have a real chance of seeing some positive progress made in the Middle East because things are moving for the first time in a very long time. Mm. The wins of technology are going to outweigh the losses. I think that, yes, we democracy is going to be pummeled due to disinformation and things like that. I was like going to say put to the test, but I like your pithy yeah. phrase better. Pummeled, put to the test. Because of disinformation, it's really going to be tested, this democratic, these elections over the next year. But I believe, actually, there's a chance of it coming out stronger. So there will definitely be some negatives. 
But I think that the opportunity space is there for anybody who wants to say, what is it that I can control? What is it that I actually have an opportunity to influence? And what is it that I'm going to do about that so that I can realize those opportunities? I was going to ask you if there was sort of a common thread across your clients, the people you advise of like, oh, do this. I'm getting the sense that very much not. You can't that, say that. Right. You can't say that. But what you can do is, and that's what I think you were aiming at here is the framework, the way to kind of understand what are the moving parts? How do you categorize them? How do you, you know, what's your taxonomy of the problems? And then really try and identify for your unique situation. Here's what I can do. Here is, here's what's in my control. And it, the only other thing that I point to from your outstanding analysis is that you had a really great visual reference where you said, look, think about it like waves. There are each of these drivers is like a wave. And sometimes waves come together and they build and you get a rogue wave, you get a tsunami. It could be too much for global systems to handle. And so, for example, if some of these global hotspots in your second layer spiral out of control and they do so at the same time, it could overwhelm the capacity of, for example, the U.S. political system to provide the leadership that kind of dampens these things down. We are kind of, well, right now, as we record this, that's an open question, whether that's going to happen with regard to Ukraine. On the other hand, they can dampen each other. They can flatten each other out. You can have kind of a virtuous cycle where one thing tamps oh, down that alleviates pressure on something else, allows resources to flow there. So again, I, it just, that really stood out to me as it's a good way to think about these things. And maybe a way as we kind of go through 2024 to keep an eye on are the multiple key factors, are they trending together in the wrong direction or are they trending together in the right direction? Exactly. I mean, let me give you one other example. Let's see how Russia Ukraine plays out. If Europe and the US is able to come up with some more budget and Ukraine is able to hold the line or even go back on the offensive, that will have implications for the US-China relationship. That will have implications for the other kind of in-between countries and what they choose to do. So again, you can see this kind of virtuous circle play out. What is key, and it comes back, and maybe this is a good place to close, it comes back to this idea of control, influence, and live with. You as an institution or an individual, you cannot stop this volatility. You cannot stop this incredible kind of profound number of events that are taking place. All you can do is to learn to manage it. So the people who are going to be successful, the organizations that are going to be successful this year, are the ones who actually learn to manage and live with the volatility, not to dampen the volatility. That would be my- It's great individual advice. I, I tell my kids, when I coach kids in sports, when I talk to my own kids, that's what I tell them, control what you can control. And it's, I don't know, it makes me feel a little bit better. Sometimes it makes me feel a little bit worse. At the very least, I like your assurance that we're probably not all going to face the end of the world in 2024. Maybe, but probably not. All right. Zania Wicked, who I promise all our all of our listeners is a real person. She's not just out of central casting of what you think the person who controls the whole world looks and sounds like. Thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics. It's a real pleasure, Matt. Thank you for having me. 